Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 373. Today is May 14th, 2022. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, hey, as of late, I've been extremely busy. I haven't gotten out the content that I know a lot of you wanted. I did keep up to date with my blog post notifications, and I also took a couple of those short thought piece videos and converted them to audio so you had something to listen to. You know, I've been on the road, I've been traveling a lot, but that hasn't been what's held me up from producing content. It's just been this crazy market that we've been in, and I've literally been spending excessive amounts of time every day tracking the huge volatility of the moves that we've seen over these last four to six weeks and literally on a daily basis trying to determine what moves I would make with adjustments in my portfolio. As it's happened, I haven't made any adjustments. The cash I have on hand is just accumulating. The positions that are on my sell list that I currently own, I'm holding them for now because I don't want to sell into weakness. And because the volatility has been so high from day to day, I haven't wanted to add any new additional positions either. So I apologize for not getting you more content over these past couple weeks, but hey, I'm going to make up for it today. Sit back and listen to me rant and digress and talk about market conditions in my portfolio and what I'm planning to do with it in the future. Let's start out with a market snapshot. And let me take you back to about a year ago. We had a lot of irrational exuberance that happened from about the fall of 2020 into the new year of 2021. That's when the vaccine first came out. That's when the reopening trade was really hot. And so there was a whole lot of enthusiasm about the economy opening up. As is always the case, everybody piles into those same stocks. They get overbought and then people start to sell and there's a sell-off. But the reopening trade wasn't based on a false promise. It was reality. The companies that survived the pandemic that were providing products and really specifically services because products didn't suffer during the pandemic other than the first few weeks. Everybody was forced to stay home. And since people love to spend money, since they couldn't go out and spend money on services or experiences, they bought products or services that they could get at home. So, you know, DoorDash, video games, junk from Amazon, exercise bikes, all those items and the companies that provide them, they got an irrational boost during the pandemic. That was the stay-at-home stocks. But as we got into the beginning of 2021 and the pandemic fears started to dissipate and the economy was opening more, the transition and all that irrational exuberance in the stay-at-home stocks got transferred to the reopening stocks. But then about exactly two years ago, right when you had the natural correction that you would have from moving into the reopening stocks where they got ahead of their skis. There was too much irrational exuberance. They naturally start to pull back. And as they consolidated, the Delta variant of the COVID virus sprung up. All the nervous Nellies began to worry. And that took us into a declining market into the summer of 2021. And the reopening stocks got especially hard hit. But as you got into the summer months... No surprise, the Delta variant proved to be irrelevant in terms of the economy. And as the reopening trade in the general stock market started to improve, then fear started to sweep in 
that the economy was overheating, that there was too much inflation, that the Federal Reserve is going to be forced to raise interest rates, and even more importantly than all that, oh my goodness, we were headed into September and October. And everybody, I mean everybody knows that those are the two most volatile, worst months of the year. So we came out of the summer and went into September and October with major fear and a big sell-off on the stock market. And the recession and the bear market never materialized. In fact, virtually every indice went on to put in a record high within the first week or two of November. And then, of course, again, things taper off. The over-exuberance starts to wear off. The market begins to consolidate a little bit. That's natural. But then in December 2021, oh my goodness, Omicron variant. You would think by the time you'd gotten to the third sequel that the market would shrug off the gloom and doom prospects that the economy was going to collapse. But they didn't, right? That's the normal fear and greed cycle. The reopening stocks, the tech stocks, uh, the cryptocurrency space, that all starts to take a big hit all the way through December, the S&P 500 actually fared better. We did end up with an S&P 500 Santa Claus rally at the end of 2021, and in fact, it even put in a record high that first week in January. But even the S&P 500 wasn't able to shrug off the excessive fears of Omicron, and after the first of the year, you had a steady decline in all the indices, and as you started to get into the end of January, to where it was becoming apparent to most people that Omicron was a big economic nothing burger, well, then we had Russian troop buildups around the borders of Ukraine. At the end of January, that really spooked the market. But then we had a relief rally as it was blown off. And, you know, Macron, he made good with Putin. And it was just some saber rattling, just a military exercise. Wasn't going to be anything. But as the days and weeks wore on and more and more troops built up, the fear continued to spread into the market and the S&P and all the other indices consistently declined all the way up until the day of the invasion on February 24th. But that proved not to be the end of the world. The prognostication of World War III and crippling cyber attacks and the need for iodine tablets all those fears began to dissipate, and by the end of March, the S&P 500 had fully recovered to the levels it was at before the Russian troop buildup had even become a factor in the markets. And I was extremely comfortable with that point. Now, I didn't necessarily think that we were going to go on and make all-time record highs from there, but I did think we'd consolidate around that point, and especially the mid-cap and the small-cap stocks and definitely those reopening stocks that had been so brutalized since early November, I thought that we would see a major recovery in those sectors. Well, I had to think again because I was totally wrong. Because at this point, all the talking heads and all the chatter was about whipping inflation and how everybody knew that we were just absolutely headed to a recession. And I'm not disputing the fact that we may end up in a recession, but if we do, this will be the most widely anticipated recession that I can ever remember. It'll also be the first recession that I'm aware of that occurred when both consumers and corporations were flush with money 
and everybody was willing to spend that money. So I'm not on the imminent recession bandwagon. But I'm also not arguing with the markets over these period of time. I'm holding on to cash. I'm not buying anything new. I'm not readjusting my portfolio because from day to day, the markets are unrealistically volatile. You go back to the first week in May, on the day that the Federal Reserve chairman came out and said that, yes, they were raising the Fed funds rate by 50 basis points, but that a 75 basis point raise was off the table. I think that was May 3rd or 4th, somewhere around there. Well, the headlines were, you know, the best day in the stock market since 2020. Literally within less than 24 hours, I think it was a Thursday, the first Thursday in May, the market totally reverses and the headlines are the worst day in the stock market since 2020. The irrationality of the whole situation was is that during that whole first week of May, there was absolutely no news. Not from what the Federal Reserve said or didn't say or any other data that came out or any other event. It was all pure fear and greed. And again, when that kind of stuff happens, I don't try and trade it. I'm already in the positions I'm in, so there's no sense selling on a bottom day, nor am I going to run out and sell on a day when the market bounces up because the chances of it continuing to bounce or fall apart are totally unpredictable. When fear and greed grips the market, you either totally stay out of it by being in cash, or if you're in the market, you just ride through those periods like you would if you were in a boat sailing through a storm. You can't do anything to affect the storm, so you just batten down the hatches and you ride through it. And the storm that we've been in since November, which I think, again, is pretty much irrational, has affected every asset class. Not just the stock market, but all investment grades, and in fact, most of them have been impacted more than the S&P 500. Look at how much money bonds have lost and crypto, and silver, and gold. This is not a stock market correction, or a bear market in the stock market. This is an investment correction. And one of the key reasons, again, that I don't think it's recessionary is because it is impacting virtually every asset class. I also don't think it's recessionary because I don't think the big thing that everybody's so worried about, which is rising interest rates, I don't think that those are going to continue to the point where they crush the entire economy. And the biggest reason is, is that the interest rates that matter, they've already risen. They've risen substantially. 30-year mortgages are well over 5%. The 10-year treasury, the 30-year mortgage, they've all risen in anticipation of the changing economic conditions and although they've been driven up by what the Fed says they're going to do, they've already moved ahead of whether the Fed moves or not. And the reality of 30-year mortgages being at about 5% and the 10-year Treasury being around 3%, that's not indicative of an economy in crisis. That's indicative of a healthy economy. Go back and look at history. Those type of interest rates are very supportive of a stable and healthy economy. It's when the rates come way down that we're in crisis mode. And yes, if they did get up extremely high, like we saw in the 1970s and early 1980s, then yes, that would be a crisis point because that would be indicative of the runaway hyperinflation. But we're nowhere near that. 
the COVID pandemic has come and gone. I think there's still some overhang where the reopening trade can continue to grow because those stocks, they've been stifled. And I think there's still a lot of excess in the stay-at-home categories. And so those could go lower. But overall, the general economy is totally 100% on track post-pandemic. What's hurting us now is Ukraine. And those choke points that I talked about in a previous episode where we are seeing rising costs in things like energy and agriculture. And we're seeing governments have to spend more money than they anticipated on weapon systems. And so that takes money from the tax base and transfers it to an area of government spending that wasn't previously anticipated. Those are all drags on the economy. But from a U.S.-centric perspective, it isn't apocalyptic. In fact, it could be quite beneficial. Again, as I pointed out in one of those previous short episodes, the United States dominates both technologically and in terms of supply to support domestic consumption and excess supply to be able to be an exporter in virtually all the areas that are choke points to the global crisis right now. That's why comparing where we're at now to what happened in the 1970s is totally irrational. In the 1970s, every year, from about 1971 all the way up until about the mid-2000s, the United States was producing less energy and specifically less fossil fuel products. And fossil fuels run the global economy. So when you're producing less of it, your economy runs into problems. But all that's changed now. The United States is a major producer and exporter of energy. The tables have turned. And while that may not be good for a lot of other countries, it will be extremely beneficial for the United States and for North America. Another reason that the fear of inflation and specifically the fear of inflation as being caused by a large increase in interest rates from the Federal Reserve, the reason that doesn't bother me is because it's all show. It's all smoke and mirrors. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates is going to have little to no effect on the areas of the economy that are most being inflated. Energy, agriculture, housing, the high prices that we're seeing in those areas of the economy have virtually nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. Now, you can make the argument that the Fed artificially holding interest rates too low for too long, and the fact that the Fed kept magnifying that effect by buying mortgage-backed securities, you can argue that that did spur the initial increase in housing prices. But that effect is long gone. As I mentioned, 30-year mortgages now are in excess of 5%, and the housing prices are still high. And the reason for that is that low interest rates weren't the only reason that people were buying houses. It's a multitude of impacts. The millennials are finally starting to form households. They're getting married. They're having kids. They're moving out of the cities. That trend was pulled forward by COVID, which not only moved people out of the cities, but also spurred more of a work from home or a workplace that was less impacted by where you live geographically. And again, that was spurred on by COVID, but that was a trend that was already in place. Go back and read my book, The Robots Are Coming. I wrote that book in 2016, and I talked about technology allowing us to be location independent. 
That was a trend that was already in place. It was already happening. You also combine that with the fact that it wasn't until about 2018 that a lot of the debt from the initial housing crisis in 2008, it wasn't until about 2018 that a large majority of homeowners had enough equity in their houses to be able to sell and move either up or down to another house. So all these trends came together and that's what's driving the housing market right now. And it's going to continue whether rates are 4% or 5% or even 6%. Yes, if rates get high enough, it will taper off, but I don't think they'll have to get that high because the high prices themselves are already the solution to runaway inflation. You know, I hear people right now complaining that they can't get a mortgage because they can't afford the 5% interest rates. Well, these are the same people that didn't buy a house when they could have gotten a mortgage for under 3%. Why is that? Why didn't they buy a house when the mortgage was under 3%? Because the real estate market was so hot that every house that they bid on, they were outbid by someone that had more money than them. Someone that was willing to pay a higher price. And so the fact that overall housing costs are going up because the cost of mortgages are going up won't squelch the home buying frenzy any more than the high cost of cement and lumber and copper and all the other factors that have caused housing prices to go up. Because people that have money and want to buy a house will buy it. And the trends are still in that consumptive favor because there is a greater demand for housing then we have houses. And so the Federal Reserve raising rates isn't going to affect that. House prices will come down when we build enough houses to meet demand. Same thing with energy and food and agricultural products. These are not things that the Federal Reserve can impact. The high cost of energy and the high cost of food right now is primarily occurring because of the Ukraine situation. But as that relates to the U.S. economy... It will be a headwind. It will drag the economy some. People will have to take their household budget and spend more on food and spend more on fuel. So that means less discretionary spending, but not to the degree that it's going to impact other nations. Again, because we are dominant in the production of energy and agriculture. And we still have a thriving economy, like I mentioned in a previous episode, where as I traveled across the country... Literally everywhere I went, people were standing in line to spend money. So why is the market sold off? And have we reached a bottom yet? Well, I don't know. We really haven't seen a capitulation where the VIX has spiked significantly above, say, 35. I mean, even in this past week of the sell-off, we saw this major relief rally come in on Friday. And the reason that's not reassuring to me is that more than anything, I think that was a short squeeze. And that was evident by all the meme stocks and the stay-at-home stocks, you know, most of them bouncing up double digits. I think that had less to do with capitulation in the overall market and more to do with the short sellers just going in to cover their positions. I don't know at what point the sellers will get exhausted and, you know, perhaps this past week was the low. I don't know. But either way, I'm not worried about it because I see strength in the overall economy, especially in good quality stocks. And so what I'm going to continue to do, even though I've wanted to trim and make some changes to my portfolio for 
quite some time, these series of unfortunate events from the, you know, the Delta variant coming in and then the Omicron and then Ukraine. Just about every time I want to make a significant change to my portfolio, an event occurs which draws down the market and I don't want to sell in weakness if I don't have to. And so once things stabilize and I see them start to move up, I will make adjustments to my portfolio. And what I'll do is very similar to what I did two years ago when COVID first hit. I held on to my positions that I thought were valuable and would appreciate in the future. And that was regardless of where they were at with current pricing. For example, prior to the pandemic, I owned ExxonMobil and a lot of other oil stocks and also many stocks in the banking sector. Those guys got crushed in the early months of COVID. I never once sold them because I knew they had intrinsic value. I believe the market was way underpricing them. And right now, those same energy stocks are probably the best performers in my whole portfolio. So I don't worry about the verities and the fickleness of the market. I look for intrinsic value, right? That's one of the wealth building principles, being able to identify value and then being able to ignore all the static and noise that's trying to convince you otherwise. So just like during the pandemic, I held on to what I thought was valuable, even if the market didn't agree with me. I jettisoned the stocks that I felt were the dogs and cats and had no more value or very limited value. I just got rid of them, took a loss if that was the case. And then I also sold off profitable companies that I thought had peaked. That gave me about a 50% cash position. And I was able to take that money and reinvest it. I did that into the COVID-90 portfolio. And even though that's pulled back significantly over the last six weeks or so, and definitely down from some of their major highs that we saw in November of 2021, that overall performance in aggregate is still profitable. My portfolio is significantly larger today than it was pre-pandemic, and I'm going to do the exact same thing with that portfolio. I'm going to keep the stocks that I think are valuable, regardless of whether they're at 52-week lows or 52-week highs. I'm going to jettison the stocks that I think are the dogs and cats and I think have less value now, and I'm also going to take the profits in any of the items that I think have gotten overbought. And with that cash that I raise, and it's going to be somewhere in the range of 30 to 50% of my portfolio, probably, I'm going to take that and I'm going to reinvest it in good quality stocks that I think are going to benefit from the next rising wave of the economy. And I want to give you some idea what that is. These are not specific stocks that are on my buy list. And so I'm going to use these stocks only to illustrate an example. Let's look at six big-name stocks that have been crushed. Every one of these stocks is a viable, profitable, money-producing corporation. Every one of them is below their 20-day moving average, their 50, their 200-day moving average. In fact, significantly below their 200-day moving average. These stocks are Amazon, Disney, Facebook, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Starbucks. Four of these six companies are more than 40% below their 52-week high. On average, they're 38.7% below their 52-week high. Now, just because a stock puts in a high price doesn't mean it's going to exceed that price in the future. 
I'm not telling you to go out and run and buy Peloton or GameStop or Teladoc because they're so far off their 52-week highs. Those were overhyped stocks. And now we're seeing that day of reckoning. But again, I digress. Let's, let's focus on these six stocks I'm talking about. These are major leaders in their industry. And just because they put in a high price in the last 52 weeks doesn't mean they're going to get back there next week or next month. But from a statistical standpoint, when you have a significant leader in its industry, it does eventually go on to put in all-time new record highs. I don't think that the high water mark for any of these stocks has been put in. I think sometime in the future, maybe a month, maybe six months, maybe two years, maybe three years. And at some point, I think every one of these six stocks will go on to a new all-time record high. Because they're profitable, they're resilient, they're leaders, they make money. So from a purely regression to the mean and technical standpoint... If you constructed a portfolio, not of just six stocks, but of 20, 30, 50 stocks that were in this same category, some large caps, some mid caps, some small cap stocks, then you're seeing a golden opportunity to buy now and own appreciating assets for the future. And again, I'm not telling you to rush out and buy these. Uh, nor am I necessarily saying I'm going to run out and buy them. Some of them I already own. I may or may not be adding to them. Some of them I don't own, and I may not be buying them. I'm just using this as an example. But Amazon, Disney, Facebook, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan, and Starbucks, over the next five years, I see no reason to believe that these stocks wouldn't be worth more in the future than they are today. And that's the kind of investing horizon you should have three to five years. If you have a three to five year window, you're mitigating a significant amount of risk. And again, looking at these six stocks, let's just say over the next three years, they all get back to their previous highs. That means that you would make nearly 40% rate of return in three years. So you're looking at nearly 13% per year for three years. That's a significant rate of return considering you're investing in leadership like Amazon, Disney, Facebook, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan, and Starbucks. And again, I'm not limiting it to just those six stocks. When I construct my portfolio, it consists of 20, 30, 50, or more stocks. I'm spreading and mitigating my risk, but it's all going into stocks that have the same concept. Assets that I believe are undervalued now and likely to appreciate in the future. And what if they don't? Or what if half of them do and half of them don't? Or however you want to break it down. Well, even if they only get to half of where they had previously been, that's still nearly a 20% rate of return in three years, which is almost 6.5% per year that is still a very significant, sustainable, resilient, long-term rate of return. If you think the building wealth is all about getting rich quick and investing in the next hot technology or investing in the next NFT that's going to the moon, then I think you're very likely going to be disappointed. I've built my wealth over more than 37 years, not by winning the lottery, not by getting rich quick, not by hitting a home run every time I'm up at bat, 
but consistently hitting base hits. Getting that 5 to 12 or more percent rate of return year in, year out. Some years more, some years less, some years you take a loss, some years you make 30 or 40 percent or more profits if you do hit that home run with bases loaded. But that happens maybe once a decade. But it's not about those home runs. It's about consistently getting up to bat and getting to first base. If you save your money and invest it wisely and then consistently reinvest those profits and you get 5 to 12 or so percent year in, year out, you're going to find that it doesn't take you 37 years to become financially independent. You'll probably do it in about 10. And you don't have to be Einstein or Warren Buffett or Elon Musk to do it. I'm not telling you you're going to get to be a billionaire by following this method, but if you have the discipline and you stick with it, it's highly likely that you can become a millionaire or a multimillionaire just by consistently investing in valuable assets, having patience, having a three to five year investment window, and not being obsessed with fear and greed. Now, what I just described was only looking at the technical and the regression side of it. And that's not all I look at. In fact, I look at three or four factors. But the other main thing that I look at, and in fact, the first thing I look at, is fundamentals. You notice that I talked about Amazon, Disney, Facebook, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan, Starbucks. I could have picked other stocks in those sectors that maybe have high potential, maybe are 80% from their 52-week high. Maybe stocks that everybody's talking about, but those companies don't make money or make very little money. That's not the case with these six stocks that I just mentioned. That's what fundamentals are about. Investing in companies that have not only appreciating value in the future, but have value today. Companies that make money. Companies that have a proven business model. Companies that may not be going to the moon, but they're going to the bank because they consistently make money. That's what fundamentals are all about. And so that's what you also want to look at when you're constructing your portfolio. Look at the fundamentals of a stock before you start looking at the technicals. Now, it doesn't mean that these companies are riskless. For example, Starbucks has a great deal of exposure to China. A lot of its future growth is tied to China. That growth may not materialize. So fundamentals are just an assessment of risk like anything else. But even taking that risk that Starbucks has and the fact that of these six stocks I have listed, Starbucks is the most expensive based on a valuation standpoint. And when I talk about valuation, I mean how much is the price of the stock today in terms of what its future earnings are. On that valuation basis, Starbucks is probably in most cases, twice as much as these other companies on the list. But still, looking at them collectively, looking at them in aggregate, these six companies represent significant fundamental value. And that's even with a company like Amazon that has an extremely high forward price per earnings ratio. It's somewhere above 40. But I can justify that because the growth expectations of Amazon are also likewise some 40% growth potential. And again, that may not all materialize, 
Amazon did get hyped up quite a bit with the stay-at-home favorite economy. But the fact of the matter is, is that Amazon is coming out of the pandemic stronger than it went into it. When you drive down the interstate, about every third truck that passes you is going to be an Amazon Prime truck. They are clearly the online retail winners. And that's a trend that it may stabilize, but it's not going away. I don't see anybody coming in dethroning Amazon in that area. And even more importantly than that, Amazon is smart enough to be expanding their business into the cloud and big data and logistics and all types of other areas that not only support their core online retailing business, but they're also services that Amazon can offer to other companies and thus monetize the things that they're doing in-house for themselves anyways. Amazon is a nation unto itself. Those are the kind of things that you want to look at when you're constructing your portfolio. That's what I did two years ago when I was trying to figure out how to recover from the loss of the pandemic. That's what I did when I constructed the stay-at-home COVID-90 portfolio. And that's what I'll be doing as I unwind those holdings and prepare to move in for the next wave of the expanding economy. Well, hey, there you have it. That's my opinion. That's my rant. That's my digression. Until next time, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.